listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, I hope you're doing well. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus 20. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some around you. Hard to believe we are in week 18 of our sermon series through this book of Exodus. This is the second book of the Bible. If you didn't know, um, Exodus is, and we are in week 18. We're actually gonna start four weeks, um, like a little mini-series within this. And Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. And so we're gonna spend four weeks walking through the Ten Commandments together. We're gonna do two of those uh, this morning. Just a little bit of disclaimer. There was a guy on our staff, uh, no longer is anymore, but used to always tell me how every time I preached, I would make some kind of comment about how my allergies were bothering me and I sounded silly, right? And I promised, I vowed, I'll never say it again until today, uh, because if you're wondering why the voice is extra deep today, it's not because we're preaching the Ten Commandments in Exodus, uh, it's just happening, and there's nothing I can do about it, all right? So the over-under has been three all day. My, my voice is gonna crack uh, three times, hit the number, the first one, only two, last service. So we'll see what we got going here today. But my voice cracks in a serious point, don't laugh at me like I'm a little middle school boy, all right? Um, what's interesting about Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments is it's a passage that's really familiar to us. Right, I don't know about you, but I grew up in rural southwest Georgia going to public school, okay? So the Ten Commandments were on the wall all the way through elementary school and maybe even past that, I don't remember, right? So this is a passage that's very familiar to us, one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, at least the Old Testament, right? You may not have known walking in here that the Ten Commandments were in Exodus 20, but you knew they were in the Bible somewhere, right? And you knew there were 10 of them, at least, all right? You at least got that. Um, it's very familiar to us, but probably uh, not as familiar as we would think. Uh, a research firm did a, a study back in 2007, and they determined, they figured out that Americans were, would score higher on naming the, the members of the Brady Bunch and the, the ingredients in a Big Mac than they could the actual what's in the Ten Commandments, right? That was in 2007, so I wonder even how much more culture has shifted and changed. So it's very familiar to us, but also very foreign. And I think a bigger issue is not even what do the Ten Commandments say, but what should we do with them? Like you and me today in this room, what should we do as Christ followers to uh, obey the Ten Commandments or how should we even think about the law of God altogether? So uh, maybe this will help. My oldest son is five and this year was his first season of T-ball. And so I said, I'm not gonna coach T-ball, but that's one of those things that you don't sign up for. It signs you up, right? It just kind of finds you. So here I am, I'm the assistant coach proudly of the the Chatham County Diamondbacks, right? Um, four and five-year-old T-ball played Ambuck on Friday night at six o'clock if you're looking for a good time. Um, but I, I'm, I'm prepared, I'm qualified for this position, okay? I grew up playing baseball, loved baseball, loved to watch it, go Braves. I even umpired for several years T-ball, got into multiple verbal altercations with grown people about their disagreements with, with my calls, but I was the ultimate authority in that space. I ain't afraid to kick you out. I'm qualified for this job as assistant coach, okay? So I had a frame of reference going into this season about what T-ball was gonna be like, but let me just tell you, T-ball has changed, all right? And here's how. Primarily, there's no outs. Yeah, and your wheels are turning, you're like, how does that even work? There's no outs, there's no umpires because you don't need an umpire if there's no outs, okay? So here's how it works, that's one. You hear it, the voice crack. Here's how it works. We, every batter, gets to bat every inning. They hit the ball, they run to first, they stop. 
Once every batter has batted, that half, the, everyone who's on base runs home and that half of the inning is over. And then you do that back and forth, back and forth until that hour of your life is lost forever. <laughs> That's the way T-ball works, okay? So it doesn't matter where they hit the ball, what happens defensively, you stop it first, okay? Even if you could advance the second, no, 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 you stop here, all right? That's how this game works. And, and so I, again, I had this frame of reference for that um, and that's just the way the thing goes. But a few weeks ago, our head coach had, had Zeke playing first base, all right? So he's playing first base. And again, nothing he did mattered about the, the scope of the outcome of the game. But we're out there, so I'm going, I'm gonna teach this little guy how to play first base. So I'm saying, all right, buddy, here's what you can do. You stand right here. If they hit you the ball and you can get it, get it. But if not, what do you do? You run to first base and you wait there until somebody on your team throws you the ball and you get it, you catch it, you touch first base and we get it out. And when I said that to him, he looked at me like, yeah, no way, they're throwing me the ball, right? Because we're still in, in dogpile mode. You guys know dogpile mode of T-ball? They hit the ball, their team spends more time wrestling for the ball than actually making the play. And so by the time they, one person gets it, you might as well just throw it back to the coach at home. That's what we're in. So Zeke's like, yeah, no way they're gonna throw it to me. Um, but anyways, we're out there. And so I'm gonna teach him how to play first base. So sure enough, this kid comes up to bat, he hits the ball to our second baseman. And by some sort of Christmas miracle, this kid fields the ball cleanly, okay? And he's confused. He looks at me like, coach, what do I do? Because he didn't have to wrestle with anyone or fight with anyone to get the ball. He just had it and he's like, what do I do? And I'm like, throw it to first, throw it to first. And so he does in the general direction of first base. And I'm like, it's happening. I can see it happening. Zeke runs over, he gets the ball. He has to, you know, it wasn't a great throw, so he had to go get the ball. And then he's running back to first base. And again, I can see it happening. I'm hearing the music in the background, slow motion. He's running, I can see it. He's gonna get there before the other kid gets there. I'm like, I'm coach of the year. I just drew this up. Like, we're making this happen. We are gonna get our first out of the season. And when I say first out of the season, that's not hyperbole. I mean the first out of the season, okay? So, He's running there. Zeke's getting close to the back. He stops. I kid you not, six inches from the base, throws the ball home. <laughs> and Mary Elizabeth, my wife, she was looking at me. She said she could see the anticipation. And then I just deflated. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and so I'm discouraged in this moment, but I'm coach, right? So I got to go encourage my boy. So I go over there and say, buddy, you did so good. Great job, you did exactly what I told you to do. You caught the ball. And then just like we, we talked about, you were running back to first base, but... Next time, next time maybe you just step on first base. <laughs> because we could have got the out. And he looks at me, he says, Daddy, we don't keep outs in T-ball. <laughs> I was like, you're right, son. You're right. Let me go back to the dugout. Here's why I'm telling you that. Although I don't think that's the best way for us to teach kids the game of baseball, it works for them because they're four and five years old, right? But what if... That's how Major League Baseball worked. Like what if there are no outs, no umpires, everybody bats every inning, no matter what happens, a guy hits a home run, stop it first, hit a ground ball to the first baseman. Not, he still gets to go, right? What if that's the way it worked and when everyone batted, everyone just ran home and that was it? Like, would, is that a game you'd wanna pay to go watch? Is that a game you wanna play? Would, would kids, would little boys grow up their whole life going, man, I wanna play professional baseball one day? No, why wouldn't they? Because without the rules or the laws of the game, it doesn't work. Without umpires to enforce right and wrong and determine who's safe and out, right, the game doesn't work. And, and when we think about laws or law enforcement, we tend to think about how they infringe on our freedom. Laws oppress us, right? IRS, your laws, you oppress my otherwise financial freedom. Got to pay my taxes now. 
police officers on the road, like you infringe my freedom, you oppress me because I would drive as fast as I want otherwise if it weren't for you. We tend to think about how they oppress us, right? But in reality, just like how baseball is pointless without rules, true freedom is not doing whatever you wanna do. Everyone doing whatever they wanna do is the definition of chaos, but rather, true freedom is found in aligning your life with the commands of God. True freedom is found with lining your life up with the way that God says works best. And this is what God is doing in the 10 Commandments. He's given his people a framework to see how life works, to see how life works best. And so as we spend the next few weeks talking about the 10 Commandments together, we need to make sure that we're thinking about them rightly, that we think about the 10 Commandments in the right way. And so I'm gonna give us two ways that we think about them wrongly. There's more than that, but I'm gonna give us two, right? Here's the first one. The first one is we think it just doesn't apply to us anymore. No longer applies. We just dismiss it because this was hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. God gives these laws on Mount Sinai to this group of people. What does that have to even do with me, right? The problem with that is what Jesus says in Luke 24. So in Luke 24, you have the resurrected Jesus. You know what I mean when I say that? The son of God, the eternal son of God who has always been and will always be took on flesh, came, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve. He rose again on the third day and then he starts showing up and talking to people. The resurrected Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Simply put, Jesus just said, the law of Moses is about him. And so we'll talk more about what this means later, but if Jesus says that the law is about him and you would consider yourself to be a Christian, right? Meaning that you intend to follow Jesus with your life. If Jesus just said the law is about him, then you can't just dismiss the the Old Testament law or this 10 commandments and say, well, that was the Old Testament because Jesus just said, no, no, no. The Old Testament's about me. And in Matthew 22, Jesus is having a conversation with some of the religious leaders of his day and and they were trying to catch him in a lie. This is a familiar passage, won't be on the screen. They ask him a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment? What's the thing that we should be doing if we wanna honor God with our lives? And what's he say? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Basically, you love God with everything you got. Then he says, but a second is like it. There's another one that's connected to it that's not love the Lord your God, but it flows out of it. If you love God, then you will what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says that if we wanna follow him, we can't just dismiss the law, but then he says here that all of the law could be summed up in this way. You love God with everything you got and you love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at the 10 commandments, and we will, what becomes clear is that they can be broken up into these same two categories. You love God and you love neighbor. The first four commandments are about loving God. The first four commandments are about ordering our lives rightly toward the God of the universe. And the last six are about loving your neighbor as yourself, about rightly ordering your life. How should you interact with the people around you? If you love God, you don't lie. You don't steal, you don't commit adultery, you don't covet, right? The last six are about ordering our lives toward our neighbor, the people around us. And what Jesus is saying is that this is what it looks like to follow after me with your life. This is the framework that the creator God gives us on how life works best. It's not an infringement on your freedoms. It's an invitation into the fullness of life that Jesus talks about in John 10, verse 10, where he says, the thief comes, the enemy, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. But then he says, but I came, that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
This word abundantly, it means more than is necessary. Right, so it's the idea of a fullness of life, life and joy despite your circumstances and then this tag on more than necessary, right? Anyone hear that and go, yeah, no thanks. Not interested, I'd rather be perpetually disappointed in my life. I'd rather live my life constantly on this cycle of hope, maybe this will satisfy me and disappointment, hope, maybe that'll just satisfy me and disappointment, one relationship after the other, one job after the other, one home, one whatever after the other, no. No one is gonna say no thanks in that, but the problem is that we seldom make the connection between obedience to the command of God as the key to the life we want. We think about God's law as an infringement on our freedoms, but rather it's an invitation into the life we want. God, the one true God of the universe, knows how life works best. This is one of the ways we think wrongly about them. The second way is we think about it as if it was a ladder that we use to climb our way to God. We think about them as a ladder to climb our way to God. So in our minds, we think, well, if, if, if this is the way life works best, and that's what I need to do, I need to obey the commandments, I need to do those things, what God says, so that he'll love me. I need to continue doing them so that he will keep loving me, so that he will keep approving me, right? Many of us, we grew up under this version of Christianity where guys like me stood up on there and said, God is good, amen? You're not? Go do better, see you next Sunday. Like we grow up in this version of Christianity where, where, where we, we live our lives on this cycle where one minute God loves me and he delights in me and everything's great, but then as soon as you drop the ball, what happens? You feel the need to run and hide from God until you can do enough good things that you bring it back to him and go, see, I know I messed up, but I did this other stuff too. Right? We live our cycle or our lives in this cycle of, of feeling great and then dropping the ball. We thought we have to run and hide from God. And this is how many of us think about the Ten Commandments and really the whole Bible in general. That obedience to God is just a ladder we climb to measure up. Maybe a better picture would be a, an escalator that's going down that you're trying to go up on. But that's the life of following God. You follow the rules or else. God's good, you're not. Try harder, see you next Sunday. And, and we believe this. Maybe not, we may not embrace this with our lives, but we, we have believed this. There's evidence of it. When you mess up and you feel like God doesn't love you as much as he did before you did that thing, that's evidence that you believe. The Christian life's an escalator. This is how many of us have thought about the Ten Commandments, right? That's why so many of us are, are exhausted because we spend our lives desperately trying to be good enough. Good enough for God, good enough for the people around us. Doing our best to climb the ladder, but it feels like no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter what decisions we make, we're not going anywhere. And it's why when we hear verses like Matthew 11, verse 28, where Jesus says this, come to me, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And we hear that and we think, man, I have never felt rest in God. Because we live our lives on the ladder. I can't afford to rest because if I do, here I am at the bottom. Right? We're thinking about the 10 commandments wrongly. They're not a list of rules for how we earn and keep God's love and approval. It's the wrong way to view the 10 commandments because what we're forgetting in this context what we're forgetting is the context that God gives the Ten Commandments to his people in. All right, so remember where we are in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God, his, his people were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God raised up a man named Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt. Tell him to let my people go. Pharaoh refuses time and time again. And so God demonstrates his power over Pharaoh and all the Egyptian gods with the 10 plagues. It culminates in the Passover. 
And Israel, God's people, their lives, the firstborn in their house are spared, not because of anything they do, but because of Jesus, because of the, the blood of the lamb they put on their doorpost that symbolizes for us, Jesus, their, their lives are spared. And, and the, the death that happens in Egypt through the Passover forces Pharaoh to let Israel go. And then he hears they get stuck in this geographical cul-de-sac at the Red Sea. The Bible says he has a change of heart and he goes after him. He says, we're gonna destroy them once and for all. And through this miraculous thing, this miraculous event, God parts the Red Sea. His people pass through on dry land. They look back at the Egyptians and their enemies are swallowed by the water. And then last week in Exodus 19, we see how God, he brought Israel from there through the Red Sea and he brings them where? To the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Last week, Bill preached on this, that God brings his people to the base of Mount Sinai and as they look up on the mountain, there's this storm. The whole mountain is shaking, thunder, lightning. The mountain's being ripped apart by God's presence, right? This is not the, the type of storm that like sends your dog into the back room, like trembling, okay? This is completely different. This is this thing where the Bible says that there was this loud trumpet blast, verse 16 of, of Exodus 19. There's this trumpet blast, which is the voice of God that got louder and louder and louder until everyone was shaking with fear, literally trembled, which is exceedingly terrified. And it's in that context, context that chapter 20, verse one says, and God spoke. And we forget the context, the 10 commandments come in and we go, well, how does that change anything? That sounds like do better or else to me. That sounds like obey or, or watch out to me, right? But no, what does God say before he gives them the 10 commandments? Look at the Bible. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God starts with this. Before the 10 commandments, he says, remember Egypt. Before he gives them the law to obey, he says, remember your salvation. Remember how when you were trapped in slavery, I dismantled the Egyptian gods. Remember how the firstborn of your house was spared from the wrath of God because of the blood of the lamb. Remember how you passed through the sea on dry ground and how you stood back on the beach and you watched as the walls of water collapsed and, and destroyed your enemies. Before God gives his people any law to obey, he says, remember Egypt. Remember Egypt. And friends, this is how we know that the 10 commandments aren't a ladder that we use to climb our way to God. Because God pours his love out onto Israel far before they even have a law to obey or disobey. He pours his love out onto Israel, his people. And again, before he gives them the law, he says this, remember Egypt. And the reason why is because God wants them to know and he wants you and I to know today that obedience to the commands of God should not be motivated by a desire to earn God's love and approval. But rather, obedience to the commands of God should be motivated by a delight in the reality that we already have God's love and approval. And we obey our God because he's the one true God of the universe and because he's a good father and because he knows how life works best. Not out of a desire to earn, but as of a delight in the reality that we already have it. And God says, remember Egypt. So if that's true, what we just said, then it is impossible for the commands of God to be an infringement on your freedoms. It's an invitation into the fullness of life. God is saying this, I've set you free and I want you to live free. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to worshiping these false gods, right? This is where you find the abundant life that you're looking for. Let's look at the Bible. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is the first commandment that God gives his people as a framework for how life works best. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Another way to say this was to say, don't worship false gods. God's saying here, don't worship false gods. That's the first commandment. And it's interesting that he doesn't start with, hey, you should worship. Doesn't start with, hey, make sure you have a God because we, are, we were created to be worshipers. The natural inclination of the human heart is to offer our worship to something or someone. We were created to be worshipers. The question is, will you worship the one true God or will you worship some other false God? The issue in Exodus 20 is not that Israel wasn't worshiping God, they were. The issue was they weren't worshiping God alone. They were worshiping God and some of the gods that they picked up in Egypt. And God wants them to know, I've set you free. Remember Egypt? Here's how you live free. Don't worship false gods. This is how you live a free life. Don't worship false gods. The best way God says that life works is that you worship me and me alone. And this isn't a coincidence that this is the first commandment. It's not like they're in random order. This one's first for a reason. Because this is the foundation of all of the Christian life. If you, you can't break any of the other commandments unless you've first broken that one. You can't lie or steal or commit adultery unless you first worship a false god. Something or something else, something or someone else that you think makes you matter in your life. God says you should have no other gods before me, right? It's not God and, fill in the blank, it's just God. This means for us, if we try to get this into our lives, that God isn't happy and content to just be on your list of priorities. So you think about your life, it's like a pie chart, you got so much time in a day, right? And, and your priorities fill that time. Well, I got my job, and I got my kids, and I got my spouse, and I got my hobbies, and I got whatever, watching the shows that I like to watch, and God fits in there somewhere, right? We got so much time in a day, and God's a priority, so we wanna make time for him, right? God isn't interested in being at the top of your list either. He's not interested in being on it. He's not interested in being the top of it. The first commandment is talking about complete and undivided allegiance to the one true God. Not that our worship would be of him would be on our list or that our worship of him would be at the top of our list, but that our worship of God would be so deeply connected to who we are, the very center of our lives, that it affects everything about who we are. That's what the first commandment is talking about. Don't worship other gods. And I think what's easy to do is to hear that and think, man, that sounds great. That sounds great. Like, I'm, I'm sure that works really well for some people. And in fact, I know some guys and girls like that. They go all in on Jesus and their life, man, from my vantage point, it seems awesome, but man, I, that's not me. That's not me. I, I, that sounds great, but I'm just going to do my best. I'm gonna be a good person. I'm gonna keep God on my list. I'm gonna go to church, right? If there's nothing more important that comes up that weekend, if somebody invites me somewhere awesome, I'll just live stream. Right, God fits somewhere in our priorities. That doesn't really work for me, but I'm just gonna do my best to keep God on my list. It's, it's easy to assume that's better than nothing, right? Shouldn't God be happy with us at least giving him some of our time that's better than us giving him none of our time? I mean, I don't worship idols. I don't worship false gods. I mean, I do have things and people in my life that I think make me matter. I have positions and, and things, people, stuff in my life that I think makes me valuable and makes me important. By the way, that is the definition of a false god. That is the definition of an idol. Sure, we have those things, but I don't, I worship God too, right? That's gotta count for something. And to that, God would say this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me, meaning you can't have it both ways. You cannot desire to worship the one true God of the universe and worship the gods of this world at the same time. Because to choose to worship one is choosing to reject the other. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't work. And the word before here. Again, this isn't talking about being at the top of our priority list. It's not about ranking or order. This word before, it literally means before my face. It means in my presence. So God says, you shall have no other gods in my presence, no other gods in front of me. 
Here's what that means. The primary way that the Bible talks about our unfaithfulness or sin against God is to call it adultery. Because the Bible paints this picture of God's people, his church, we are his bride. And God is the husband, right? There's this, that's the way the Bible describes the relationship between his people and himself is, is a marriage. And so, when we sin against God, the Bible would call that adultery. It's unfaithfulness against God is called adultery. And regardless of, of your background or what, what catastrophic, tragic things have happened in your own life, we can all agree that committing adultery is bad. We can agree that committing adultery is, is not a good thing, right? But what if you were to commit adultery in the presence of your spouse? Like they're in the room. Like that better? They're in the room, you commit adultery in their presence before their face. That's what the first commandment is talking about. And in that situation, would anyone ever argue, well, at least they were in the room? Would anyone ever say, well, I mean, I know I love them too, but I love you as well. Like, we can can make this work. No. No one would ever say that. And God is saying in the first commandment, he's saying, do not commit adultery in my presence. And since there is nowhere for, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. There's nowhere for us to go where we can hide from his presence. That means there's nowhere for us to go where we can safely play with our idols. There's no safe place for you that has ever or will ever exist for you to worship false gods. Choosing to worship anything or anyone other than the one true God is choosing to reject the one true God. And so how do we do this in our lives, right? How are we guilty of worshiping false gods? We get this command, Jesus says, the law and the commandments are about me. God commands us, don't worship false gods. So where does this exist in our lives? How do we identify it? I wanna give you a couple places to look in your own life to see where are you guilty of worshiping false gods? And again, this, no one's innocent, not even me. Let me give you a couple places to look. The first one is in your fears. In your fears. What What are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of happening? And how you answer that question, it will really help you identify the things and the people in your life that you worship other than God. Are you afraid that you will never get married? Afraid that you'll be single for your entire life, right? Are you afraid that you will never have kids? And real quick, it's not a bad thing to desire to be married. It's not a bad thing to desire to have children. In fact, the Bible would say that those are good gifts from God. It's not even bad to feel sad or lonely in times as you petition God and beg God for the deep longings of your heart. But when the fear of never having, insert the blank, when the fear of never having those things sinks itself down into your soul so deeply that it begins to bear the fruit of bitterness between you and God, so now you can't trust him and you don't wanna obey him because he hasn't given you that thing. When the fear of whatever makes you now bitter, it sinks itself into the deep places of your soul and it bears the fruit of bitterness and now jealousy to the people around you who do have that thing, that might be where you've taken a good thing and elevated it into a God thing, an ultimate thing, and now you're worshiping a false God. It's in your fears. Um, What are you most afraid of? Are you afraid that you won't make enough money to retire the way that you always thought you would? You're afraid of not getting into the college that all your friends got into and now they're gonna forget about you and your life's ruined. And what are you most afraid of? Because when you start turning rocks over in the deep places of you, those, flipping those rocks over is oftentimes where you might find your false gods hidden. So it's in our fears, also in our happiness, our happiness. 
What makes you the most happy in your life? What are the things that bring you the most joy and delight in this world? Right? Is it the way you look? Is it the way you don't look? At least I don't look like that person, right? Is it getting new things, the intoxication of getting something new? This, this brings me the most amount of joy when I can just open the new package, right? Whatever, is it, is it alcohol, is it food? Where do you run after a long day of going, man, I just need this if I'm gonna be happy, right? And, and again, just like with our fears, false gods don't have to be bad things. In fact, oftentimes they're good things that we then elevate into ultimate things and make them they become false gods in our lives. They're not always bad things. And it's not that even just because something makes you happy that it's automatically a false god in your life. No, it's this. It's does your happiness in life depend on it? Does your happiness in life depend on it? What are the things in your life that you would say this? Unless I have blank, I can't be happy. We could find our false gods in our happiness and our fears. And then here's the third one. This one may not seem as obvious, but... You can find your false gods in your prayers. Find them in your prayers. So what are, what are the things that you find yourself asking God for over and over and over? And I'm not saying that praying to God over and over and over again for the same thing is bad, because it's not. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18, and he refers to God as like a judge. He said, there's this judge. He wasn't even righteous, but this woman kept coming to him perpetually, the parable of persistent widow. She keeps coming to him and the judge finally gives her what she wants because he says, I will give you what you want to get you out of my hair so you don't beat me down by your perpetual coming. And then Jesus says, pray to God like that. All right, so it's not a bad thing for us to petition God, again, for the deep longings of our heart. But what are the things that you find yourself negotiating with God over? God, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll finally give this thing to you, if you will. God, I'll finally give this thing up that I know I shouldn't have been doing with. I've been playing with it, thought I had a safe place for my idols. I've been doing this thing. I'll finally give it up, God, if you blank, right? Whatever, whatever is on the other side of that if for you, that's your false God. Because when God comes, becomes the means by which we get something else, that something else is actually what you're worshiping, not God. And you can find your false gods in your prayers, right? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Meaning God and fill in the blank isn't going to cut it. And again, this is not an infringement on your freedoms. This is an invitation into how life works best. God says, no other gods before me. Then look what he says next. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. So when you first hear this, it sounds like he's just rewording the first commandment, right? Don't worship false gods. And now he says here, don't make an idol. And it sounds like two ways of saying the same thing, but it's different, all right? It's different. And, and here's how. The first commandment says this, don't worship false gods. The second commandment is saying this to you and I, do not worship God falsely. Don't worship false gods and then do not worship capital G, the one true God, falsely, right? This is what it says. Let me explain. So Israel had just come out of this Egyptian culture and they had all these gods and each one of them had an image associated with it, right? And they didn't think that the image was the God itself because that would be silly, but they, they made this image as if it was a representative of that God, right? And oftentimes the image of the likeness was referred to like in animals, right? So if you had a God who you thought of as being really wise, you would carve this little figurine and you would give it the head of an eagle, 
because my God is wise and so he has this eagle head. Or if your God was powerful or strong, then you would give the God the head of the bull because this God is powerful, because he is strong. And when God says in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, he's not saying again, don't worship false gods. He's already said that. He's saying, don't worship me falsely. Don't try to make an image of me that you would then use to offer me worship. And he says this because he knows there isn't any created thing that can capture the creator. There's no created thing. He says, not in heaven, not in earth, not under the earth, right? Nowhere. God says, don't make for yourself an image or a likeness. He's saying, don't worship me falsely. And his point is this. Don't try to picture me as something easier for you to understand. Don't try to get this picture of me in your head that you can just get your hands around a little, like symbolically, obviously, and you just got, I got it right here in my pocket whenever I need it, it's convenient. This is my God. Don't try to worship an image of me that you, that you use to offer me worship. He says this because there isn't anything creative thing, again, that can communicate the image of his creator. And at first thought, it's easy to put a, a, a check by the second commandment, right? That's all we gotta do? Don't whittle a little figurine of God that looks like an animal and don't bow down to it or worship it. Don't carry it around. Great, check. Like it's easy to think like we got that, but the, but the heart of the command, God is saying, don't try to reduce me into something or someone I'm not. Don't try to reduce me into something or someone I'm not. Don't try to make me less than who I am. And we do that all the time. We do that every time we think to ourselves, man, I like to think about God like this. We're just kind of trying to picture him in our mind rather than talking about how has God revealed himself to be in his word. I like to think about God like this. Or we do this when we, we say things or people, maybe you've heard someone say this, there's no way I could ever worship a God who would send people to hell. There's no way I could ever worship a God who would blank. No way I could ever worship a God who's not love but who's also wrath, right? We are defining God. We are creating an image of God in our minds. We are doing that. And we break the second commandment every time we made an image of God in our minds that is less than who he's revealed himself to be. God does not say this, don't make an image of me for yourself because we don't need an image to worship. It's just that no created thing can communicate all that who he is. And not only that, as God says this to his people on Mount Sinai, he has in his mind one day that Jesus would come. The one who Colossians 1 says is the image of the invisible God. He's the image that we worship. The image, the image of the invisible God. Verse 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When God says this to his people on Mount Sinai, he has in mind what the author of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 1 verse 3, when Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the words of his power. You see why no image will do? No created image will do, because we can say, hey, my God's wise, we get the head of an eagle, but he's wiser than that. He said, my God's strong, so he has the head of a bull, and so, but God's stronger, he's more powerful than that. He's got the legs of a horse because he's quick to save, but God is quicker to save than that. No image will do, only Jesus. The image of the invisible God. And we could easily spend a whole week on the second commandment alone, but for the sake of time, I want you to answer this one question. Is the Jesus that you worship the real Jesus? Or is it a version of him that you made up in your mind because you like that one better? Is the Jesus that you worship the real Jesus? And if you believe in the real Jesus, it means you can't control him. Believing in the real Jesus, the one, not the one we prefer, but the one that's revealed to us in the scriptures, 
Believing in the real Jesus means you don't get to edit him based on your preferences. It means that he, he gets to call you out, right? So if you have a Jesus who never presses against your preferences, if you have a Jesus who never presses against your likes and opinions, never presses against your political affiliations, if you have a Jesus who never calls you out, then I, my guess is you have a Jesus who that you prefer, not the one that's revealed to you in the Bible. And if you have a made up Jesus, you have a Jesus who has no power to save you. We must worship the real Jesus. And again, we do this a number of ways, but primarily we try to make an image of God in our mind when we try to edit Jesus to fit our preferences. We think Jesus needs a new PR guy. But church, Jesus doesn't need us to make him look cool. He's the God of the universe. He needs us to worship him. If we're gonna be anything, let us not be people who worship a version of Jesus because we prefer him, but let's be, the, let's be people who worship the real Jesus, the one who's revealed to us in the scriptures. Look at verse four again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Don't have much time. Two things I wanna clarify in this section. Firstly, in verse five here, when it says that, that God is jealous. God is jealous. This is not the way that Nick Jonas means it. So if you didn't think that was funny, you need to ask somebody younger what that means. So I gotta give the younger generation some love, right? Because Bill is always Journey references, 80s movies, Bon Jovi, all right? This is not the way that Nick Jonas means jealous, which basically means God's not pouting because you're not spending enough time with him. God's jealousy is right and righteous because it's fueled by the desire of what is rightly his. His jealousy is like a man whose wife just cheated on him in the same room. God's jealousy is right and righteous. He alone deserves our worship. And so secondly, verse five, does, when it says the iniquity of the fathers, he visits that on the children to the third and the fourth generation. This does not mean that God will directly punish children for the sins of their father or their grandfather. What it does mean is that the way that we worship and who we worship impacts, it leaves a legacy to the people around us, especially those most close to us, like our children. Who we worship, the way we worship affects the people around us. And, and this is specifically talking to, re referring to parents, but when you read your Bible, you see there's an element of spiritual replication and multiplication. This applies to not just parents, this applies to all of us. That the way that we live our life, who we worship and how we worship, imparts a legacy to the people around us, especially those most close to us, right? And who here would be willing to stand up and say that for better or worse, their earthly father has not shaped their life at all? For better or worse, at least at some capacity, you, your life has been shaped by your father. Right? God says who we worship leaves a legacy. And it's either a legacy of salvation or a legacy of destruction. You worship the one true God, there's, a, there's all power. The one, who has, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power and you worship a false God has no power. No power to save you, right? And I just wanna say this um, to parents, particularly to fathers in the room. I know... Right now, when someone says something like that, in the back of your mind, you're thinking about all the mistakes you've made. And I know you probably think that you have neglected this aspect of your life for so long that there's nothing that you can do to change it. And I want you to hear from me and then from God. 
It's not too late. It's not too late. Because in verse five, God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, but to those who love him and keep his commandments, what? Steadfast love to thousands. That word thousands means to the thousandth generation. Visiting iniquity for three or four, but showing steadfast love to thousands. This means God is saying to you, regardless of where you find yourself, if you feel stuck, if you feel like you've neglected it, you've been a horrible whatever, it's not too late to change the legacy that your life is leaving. God is far more eager to extend mercy and kindness than he is to enact judgment. Psalm 145, verse eight. Some of us need to hear this this morning. The Lord is gracious. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You are beat down by your mistakes and your failures. You feel defined by all the ways you've blown things up in the past. The Lord is gracious. That's not just a general sense. This is the disposition of God toward his people. The Lord is gracious to you. The Lord is merciful to you. The Lord is slow to anger toward you. He is abounding in steadfast love for you. And if you feel stuck, man, regardless if that's in your parenting or regardless of where you find yourself, I need you to hear this. You're not alone because Jesus is with you and so are we. And we wanna help. You were not created to, to carry the load of your life by yourself. We've been invited to follow Jesus together as the church. So please let somebody know before you leave here. And the first and second commandments, God is saying that this is how life works best. This is it. Don't worship false gods. Don't worship God falsely. And yet, as we've already covered this, there's no one in this room who could say that they haven't been repeatedly guilty of breaking the first and the second commandment, myself included. So what do we do? God commands this of us. What do we do about it? Well, just like the Israelites, before they hear the law, we need to hear this. Remember Egypt. Remember your salvation. Remember, like Israel, you have been brought out of the house of slavery, not because of anything that you have done, but entirely because your life, your sins, your failures, your transgressions, your iniquity have been completely covered by the blood of someone else, by the blood of a lamb. Not because of what you've done, but because of who he is. And we have been freed from a greater enemy than the Egyptians. We've been set free from sin and death. And we start this place, every one of our days should be started with remembering salvation because when we do that, we remember that our obedience to God's commands isn't motivated by a desire to earn or to keep his love. But when we start with remembering salvation, remembering Egypt, we, we know, we reoriented our lives to say, my obedience to God's commands is motivated not by a desire to earn, but by a delight in the fact that it's already true about me. And that changes the way you live your life, right? You get down off the escalator, And you go, God, what do you want me to do? I don't deserve your love, but you've given it to me, and so I'm gonna live in it. I'm gonna line my life up in obedience to your your commands because you are a good father and you know how life works best. And when I fail, not if, when I fail, I'm not gonna run and hide from you and try to fix it up. I'm gonna run to you because you are a good father. Because hundreds of years after God speaks on this mountain, he speaks again on another mountain. Matthew chapter 17, you don't have to turn there. But Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. He takes them up on the mountain, and while he's there, God speaks. And again, there's the storm, there's thundering, there's lightning, the voice of God like a trumpet in the background. Matthew 17, he doesn't give them 10 commands. He gives them only one. Matthew 17, verse five. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, listen to him. That's the commandment for us, church. 
We listen to Jesus. We listen to him. We, this is why you, you spend your life reading your Bible and praying, or at least you should, should spend time, not to earn God's love or to try to manipulate him, because in the word, God speaks. Because through prayer, Jesus speaks, and there's a command from the mountain, listen to him. And it's not enough to intend to spend time with God, you need to make time for God. So when are you gonna do it? When are you gonna listen to Jesus? Do you even know what he says? This is the commandment for us, that we would listen to Jesus. And the same Jesus who says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, the same Jesus who gives us that commandment also says this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Church, let me pray for us, and then we'll respond to God through song. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful this morning for the reality that Psalm 145, verse eight, is not generic, but it applies to us directly. Help us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to believe that you are gracious toward us, that you are merciful and kind, that your anger toward us is slow, but you abound in steadfast love. Encourage us, God, through the good news of the gospel as we remember together that we're loved by you, not because we deserve it, but because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen.